Lavelle R. Felton, nicknamed Vel and Romy by both family and future teammates, was a driven and athletically gifted young man from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. His passion for basketball and dedication to fatherhood were cut short by an unsolved murder in the summer of 2009, leaving all who knew him across international basketball leagues and the entirety of his hometown of Milwaukee grasping for answers in a sea of mysteries that drowned us all in doubt. As I hope to provide more substantial reasoning built upon observable evidence and situational analysis, this is an examination of the death of Lavelle Felton in downtown Milwaukee and the unsettling CCTV footage showing his killer, who has yet to be caught to this very day. This is Cold Case Detective. The following episode covers sensitive topics such as gun violence. Viewer discretion is advised. Lavelle R. Felton was born on the 5th of October 1979 in a little neighborhood on the north side of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Little is known about the exact circumstances of Lavelle's infancy and relationship with his birth father, but at some point in the young man's life, his mother cut off communication with Mr. Felton. Instead, she remarried to Ken McLean also from Milwaukee, and Ken became an instrumental figure in Lavelle's life. He instilled a foundation of motivation, wisdom, and love in Lavelle. As a young boy, Lavelle discovered his first true love in the game of basketball. He was drawn to athletics almost as soon as he could walk, but grew especially fond of basketball. The 1980s was an electric time for basketball's rise in the pop culture lexicon of the United States. The Showtime Lakers catapulted to prominence the year Lavelle was born, and his indoctrination to the sports came at a perfect time, as the game had never been more action-packed by the mid-1980s. For his hometown Milwaukee Bucks, Lavelle watched Terry Cummings lead the team to moderate success, finding inspiration in the Bucks' basketball acumen. In the 1990s, the Bucks found less success on the courts, but Lavelle's passion only grew. He eagerly watched Glenn Robinson and future star Ray Allen begin their careers, as the rest of the NBA saw Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls win six championships and truly put the NBA into the minds of even uninterested fans. The hours spent in front of the television weren't all for naught, though, as Lavelle acted on his passions and made it his ultimate goal to one day play in the National Basketball Association a reality. Of course, the first place Lavelle went to hone his craft was the public basketball courts across North Milwaukee. The neighborhoods surrounding him were relatively quiet, but that didn't mean the competition was any less helpful. Rather, Lavelle used his friends and classmates from around the Brew City as tests for his own development as a basketball player. At home, his stepfather Ken took him under the wing to teach him the personal side of being an athlete. Ken taught his stepson the importance of teamwork, selflessness, and winning with grace. A combination of both a healthy father figure as a coach and the undying passion to practice every single day gave birth to an even greater success once Lavelle entered high school. At the age of 14, Lavelle joined the men's basketball team as a freshman at Madison High School in downtown Milwaukee. It didn't take long for his presence of mind and matured physicality to win over his actual coaches and make the varsity team before his senior year. That winter season, Lavelle dominated the courts and drew scouts to nearly all of his games. 
his play showcasing his potential in both college and beyond. He was solely credited with the revival of the basketball greatness once known at Milwaukee Madison High School. Not only that, but Lavelle impressed folks off the court just as well. By the end of high school, he was graciously awarded the Jack Takarin Award, given to a Milwaukee Public Schools athlete who displays the most unselfish play across the district. Despite scouting throughout Lavelle's senior run, he wasn't given any scholarship offers to major college basketball programs. Instead, Lavelle kept his head up and enrolled at a junior college where he could take courses while still playing organized basketball. Of course, the smaller venue didn't halt Lavelle's development. He excelled even at junior college and eventually drew the eyes of Keith Richard, not the Rolling Stones Keith Richard, the then coach of the Louisiana Tech University men's basketball team. Coach Richard recruited him and quickly won Lavelle over. Lavelle only improved as a scorer and playmaker, adjusting to life in college at a new position of point guard. For the 2002 to 2003 season, he averaged 13.7 points and over five rebounds per game after guiding the team deep into the NIT postseason tournament the year prior. Hoping to be selected by a team in the NBA, Lavelle went undrafted after his senior season in 2003. He did not let that destroy his dreams, however, and continued training and dedicating countless hours to the practice facilities. The hard work paid off when Lavelle drew interest from Buyuk College BK, a now defunct former basketball club of the Turkish Basketball League. He played in the TBL for a few seasons before signing with a Greek A2 Basketball League club. From here, he transferred to the French Pro A League, back to Greece for their top organization, the Greek League, and finally to the Pro A League in Germany, where he played for both Science City and Paderborn. For Paderborn, Lavelle was considered the leader on the 2008-2009 team. His former coach, Doug Spradley, saw Lavelle give support to the youngest players on the club, despite his youthful age himself. He was so savvy in his leadership, he was able to guide the team to their first ever playoff berth, hitting the winning shots with ease. It had been six years since Lavelle graduated from Louisiana Tech, but the NBA still was right in front of him. He wouldn't quit chasing his dream, no matter what it cost. In the summers between European play, Lavelle would return home to Milwaukee, where he would host charity training events, such as the midnight basketball camps for young athletes. Lavelle would also work alongside his stepfather, Ken, at his job site in Allerton, Wisconsin. He never stopped providing for his own family, which he started in the late noughties, adopting his new wife's baby boy, Austin Tucker, as his stepson and having two more children with her. By 2009, his three children now included a four-year-old son named Lavelle Jr. and a two-year-old girl named Shamir. Lavelle knew what it was like to have no relationship with his biological father, and how vital it was for a stepfather to provide a father figure to his kids, regardless of blood relation. Lavelle provided for his children, not allowing his travels to impact the positive influence he had as a devoted father. Unfortunately, one of those summer trips home to Milwaukee turned to tragedy for Lavelle and his flourishing family. In 2009, just a day or two away from returning to Europe to field multiple offers from around European clubs, Lavelle Felton was murdered in cold blood at a gas station in downtown Milwaukee on August 13th. Let us now turn to the timeline of events leading up to Lavelle's murder. In the first few days of August 2009, Lavelle Felton returns home to his northern Milwaukee suburb after a busy basketball season concluded in Germany. Not long after arriving, Lavelle receives word from his Los Angeles-based agent 
Mark Mayamera, that multiple European teams are eyeing Lavelle as a potential new player and plan on offering contracts pending his return to Europe. After telling his closest friends and family members around Milwaukee, Lavelle decides to spend the rest of his week at home celebrating with loved ones. During the day, Lavelle still made sure to look after his wife and children and would go to work with his stepfather Ken like summers of old. In the evening, he would venture into the limited nightlife Milwaukee had to offer. He was always accompanied by at least one other close friend or cousin. On the evening of Tuesday, August 11th, 2009, Lavelle arranges a night on the town with both childhood friends and a few members of the Felton family, including his pal, J.D. Henderson, and cousin, Ed Austin. To put a cherry on top of the special occasion, Lavelle offers to drive his classic old-school car that he had become famous for driving around Milwaukee on his return home. Officially, it was listed as a customized black 1976 convertible Buick Centurion. Lavelle had worked hard to get where he was, and feels the special car is his way of rewarding himself for decades of dedication and sacrifice. Later that night, as the clock struck midnight on Wednesday, August 12th, Lavelle and company hang out at the nightclub formerly known as Questions, located on North Avenue near the Lower East Side District. After a few hours of partying, the group of guys leave Questions without incident. They are not followed nor pursued and depart without engaging in any sort of conflict with each other or other nightclub patrons. A few minutes before 2am in the early morning hours of August 12th, Lavelle and his cousin Ed decide to pull over at a local Clark gas station to fill up the classic car. The station is located at the corner of the 2100 block of North 35th Street and West Garfield Avenue. They park next to one of the pumps and Lavelle exits the vehicle to make the purchase. He and Ed engage in some casual conversation with a couple of other people hanging around the station. Moments later, while Lavelle fills the Centurion with gas, a second customized classic car pulls up into the Clark parking lot and temporarily parks parallel with Lavelle's Buick. Lavelle and his cousin Ed watch as this second vehicle revs its engines, two unidentified adult men sitting in its driver and passenger seat. After a couple of seconds, the disruption ends and the second car speeds away as quickly as it arrived. Lavelle shrugs it off, unsure of why the interaction happened, but not necessarily upset. He climbs into the driver's seat of his own Buick Centurion and prepares to leave. At the same time, the overhead lights at the gas station flicker off, most likely in response to the suspicious vehicle revving its engine moments before. Ed Austin then takes his turn to climb into the passenger seat of Lavelle's car. As he sits down, the same strange classic car screams back into the gas station parking lot, this time only occupied by the driver. The driver then rolls his window down and starts firing a gun into the air. Simultaneously, what is suspected to be the former passenger of the suspicious classic hides in the shadows and fires a second gun in the direction of Lavelle's Buick Centurion. Inside of the Buick, Ed realizes the bullets are penetrating the window and striking his cousin, Lavelle. He immediately jumps out of the car and runs northwest from the gas station, eluding any further gunfire. He runs to the nearest open business and phones 911. Back at the Clark gas station, as Ed runs off, Lavelle's Buick slowly rolls forward and strikes another parked car. After the collision stops the Centurion from moving, the final bullet penetrates the car and strikes Lavelle in the head. Within moments, paramedics and police arrive on the scene. The ambulance personnel are able to get Lavelle to the hospital with his heart still beating, 
as police canvass the area for clues and suspects. Once Laval arrives at the hospital, his family is notified of the shooting. Meanwhile, detectives discover shell casings and stray bullet holes around the Clark gas station where the shooting took place, including in the open yard located on the south end of the property. As the sun rises on August 12th, doctors work tirelessly to keep Lavelle alive. The entire day, the Milwaukee Police Department searches the city for the driver and passenger of the suspicious vehicle from the night before, but can't pick up on any leads. Unfortunately, the following day, on Thursday, August 13th, Lavelle Felton succumbs to his gunshot wounds and passes away in the presence of family. His wife and children get to say their goodbyes, including his five-year-old stepson, Austin, who cries as he kisses his father figure on the forehead for the final time. As the north side of Milwaukee mourns the loss of one of their brightest and most promising members of the community, his teammates across the pond learn of his death. The entirety of the Pro-A League in Germany is hit heavily by the tragic news. Back home, pressure mounts against the Milwaukee Police Department to spend additional resources in locating Lavelle's assassin, but authorities struggle to come up with any leads outside of a couple of eyewitness testimonies and the evidence left behind by the weapon of choice. These shortcomings quickly evolve into a cold case, as a decade passes by without much progress being made. Detectives receive a new tip here and there, but they never amount to anything. Lavelle's case would remain mostly untouched until July of 2019, when police reveal they have finally acquired the exact gun used to murder Lavelle a decade before. The weapon was involved with a completely separate crime, but detectives are hopeful it could provide a trail that leads them back to the original murder. Around the same time, the MPD releases CCTV footage captured at the gas station during Lavelle's murder. In the three and a half years since this revelatory footage was released and the murder weapon found, nothing new has been released by law enforcement, nor are there any new leads. The Felton family and his surrounding community still ask for any information to be provided to the MPD and haven't given up on bringing home justice for their son. Without a doubt, the evidence list in the case of Lavelle Felton is incredibly bare, with hardly any information made public by police. While the MPD has announced they found the ammo and gun used in Lavelle's cold-blooded killing, they haven't specified exactly what kind of gun it was, nor the exact type of ammunition that was recovered at the scene of the crime. Nor has law enforcement clarified the exact make and model of the car seen both before and during Lavelle's murder, and most likely the getaway vehicle for the murderer at large. It's possible a detailed account of the car was never made available to police. However, even a general description, besides the phrase old school classic, would be helpful. It's unknown if an APB was ever administered back during the time of the initial investigation. Luckily, what we do have is the closest thing to a live look at the crime exactly when it happened. With the 2019 footage of the Clark gas station in question, we might be able to draw a better idea of what exactly happened in the early morning hours of August 12th, 2009. The first segment of the footage shows us Lavelle and Ed during their first part of the gas station stop. You can see a second car pulled up at an adjacent pump to where Lavelle's Buick is parked under the overhead lights. While there is no audio, it's assumed this is where the vehicle revs the engine and pulls away. Two major points can be drawn from this section alone. 
First, if this is indeed the car referred to in eyewitness testimony, it's not really the old-school classic model that we were led to believe was there. Rather, it's more of a silver sports car from the modern line of cars. Secondly, this clip shows one of the car's occupants running away from the gas station to the northeast side of the street. It's unknown whether or not this is the killer, but it does prove that the car drove away with one less person than originally thought. The second segment shows the actual murder take place. As Ed Austin climbs into the passenger side of the Buick Centurion, the gunshots begin raining down on the classic car, before Ed jumps back out as Lavelle is struck. Then the car inches forward and crashes into a parked car, the precise moment when Lavelle's fatal blow is delivered. This part of the footage coincides with the account we were told as to exactly what happened. The overhead lights are turned off, Ed runs northwest as soon as the gunshots make impact, and Lavelle loses consciousness seconds later. While the actual suspects aren't seen in the critical portion of the CCTV tapes, it does help detectives piece together the scene of the crime. Because the shell casings were found in the lawn just south of the gas station, it makes sense that they'd be there off-camera, shooting north where Lavelle's car was located. It might not necessarily bring us any closer to identifying Lavelle's killers, but the footage still plays a massive role in the case as a whole. If anyone was living in Milwaukee during this time, or in the general vicinity in August of 2009, viewing the tapes could jog a forgotten memory or flashback to the time period. There could be people out there who remember seeing a shirtless man running through the backyards of houses along North 35th Street, and able to provide a more accurate description to a potential suspect. There could be others who remember a silver sports car flying down West Garfield Avenue around 2am on August 12th and saw them park or the occupants run into a residency that hasn't been explored yet. Regardless of the hypothetical scenario, someone in Milwaukee knows something, and spreading awareness of the existence of this footage could be the key necessary to unlock a mystery to unlock a mystery-solving memory. Let us now turn to the most prominent theories in the murder of Lavelle Felton. Dealing with cases missing critical pieces of evidence or a simple lack of public information can make drawing up theories incredibly difficult. The case of Lavelle Felton's murder is no different. What is a little easier than formulating theories is considering what theories we can rule out based on the data we do have. One of those theories is the idea that Lavelle was a victim of an armed robbery gone wrong. Just based on the CCTV footage alone, we know Lavelle wasn't the target of a theft, as we never see the suspect or assailant move in on Lavelle, his cousin, Ed, or his vehicle. This is particularly obvious when, considering after the shots are fired and Ed runs off, no one attempts to steal Lavelle's car or remove anything from his person. Police also have stated nothing was missing from the vehicle when it was seized by law enforcement. The crime simply doesn't match what would be considered a normal attempted robbery or carjacking. If the suspects wanted to kill Lavelle and Ed simply to steal the Buick Centurion, why would they litter the car with bullet holes? Not only would it make restoring the vehicle incredibly hard, as reputable mechanics wouldn't be an option, but if they had misfired the gun and done serious damage to the car's vitals, it would make the entire operation even more senseless. This line of thinking was first questioned by Lavelle's stepfather, Ken McLean. Ken didn't believe his son was being robbed on the morning of August 12th, 
but felt his classic car did play a role. The way he explained it, he believed the men in the silver car seen next to Lavelle in the CCTV footage were jealous of Lavelle, driving around his old school Centurion, and were so bothered by his presence that they murdered him. It might seem like a stretch to suggest one man would murder another in cold blood due to nothing but jealousy, but we aren't sure what was exactly said by the suspicious men before they left and returned with gunfire. It's possible they were saying things to Lavelle about his car. If the men didn't like Lavelle's reaction, it could have been enough to spur their emotions to a dangerous degree. Again, this is very unlikely. Ed has since stated there were no conversations made with the men in the second sports car, nor was there any trouble at any of their stops the entire night. This includes the Questions nightclub. Some wonder if the men could have targeted Lavelle while they were out celebrating, but Ed also told police there were no interactions or situations at the nightclub that could have led to Lavelle's murder. So even if someone did get mad at the basketball phenom, they didn't let it be known until it was too late. One theory that has been suggested in the same realm is that the men who killed Lavelle did in fact shoot him over the 1976 Buick Centurion, but due to a disagreement well before the morning of August 12, 2009. These theorists wonder if the men who killed Lavelle were at one point supposed to buy the car he was driving that night, and were jealous they weren't the ones that ended up with the Centurion. Why they resorted to murder for this is again beyond anyone's comprehension but Ken McLean was one of the people closest to Lavelle and was truly convinced the car played an important role. If authorities haven't done so already, it might be a good idea to run through the history of the car's ownership and interview the sellers to trace back any suspicious activity. But if Lavelle wasn't the victim of an armed robbery, what else could explain such a senseless killing? Some believe Lavelle was murdered intentionally as a result of possible shady activity over in Europe. Lavelle had been playing international basketball for years and spent the bulk of his time overseas away from family and friends. It is possible he got into trouble with the wrong people and was followed back to Milwaukee before his death was made to look like a local tragedy. The problem with this theory is how vague and presumptive it is. There's hardly any evidence to suggest Lavelle died at the hands of a hired assassin and sounds more like the plot of a Hollywood blockbuster than something that would happen in real life. Firstly, not a single former teammate, coach, trainer, or friend of Lavelle's across multiple countries in Europe could attest to anything of that degree. Lavelle never displayed any suspicious behavior or hidden agenda while he was playing basketball across the pond. Secondly, Lavelle was described as a hard worker and inspired leader. He was the one telling players even younger than him to stay focused on their development as basketball players and not let the distractions of the real world interrupt their goals. Nobody in his life, be it within the basketball world or at home in Milwaukee, wondered if Lavelle was mixing up in trouble. He had maintained a healthy personality and demeanor since he was a child, and while that's never proof of someone's innocence, it makes theories saying that Lavelle was a wanted drug dealer or gambling addict nearly impossible to believe. The one thing that lends itself to the theory that Lavelle was a hired hit is the circumstances surrounding the moments right before and after the fatal gunshots rang out. Those who believe Lavelle was killed by a professional hitman believe that the overhead lights at the Clark gas station were not turned off as a safety precaution, but rather were intentionally dimmed to give the shooter more cover. Police interviewed the Clark employees after the facts, and they were adamant the only reason they turned the lights off 
was because of the incident of the silver car revving its engine and peeling out of the parking lots only minutes before Lavelle died. That, along with the unidentified man running away from the gas station at the same time, spooked the employees into turning the lights off. They thought it might be a deterrent to anyone returning and causing further trouble. The skeptics aren't too sure, however. They also claim that the killer must have known where the CCTV camera was in relation to the rest of the property. They believe the killer was very intentional about using the lawn just to the south of the gas station so that they wouldn't be seen, yet still have a clear view of Lavelle's Buick. Of course, the counter-argument would be that the men who are most likely guilty of the crime, the driver and passenger of the silver sports car, showed themselves on camera anyway. You can clearly see multiple people and the silver car itself in front of the camera in the clip recorded before the murder. Not only that, but it doesn't appear as if these men are scoping out the property or looking for cameras. The clip we do have access to is short. However, the Milwaukee Police Department more than likely had access to the full tape and would have hopefully analyzed it for long before releasing the important parts to the public. In reality, the entire situation can probably be explained as two men showing up at the gas station, causing enough trouble to scare the folks inside to turn the lights off, then returning minutes later. They probably used the South Lawn as a way to hide in the darkness and act as a surprise to both Lavelle and Ed. And coincidentally, it was also behind the viewpoint of the CCTV camera. The most likely scenario to explain Lavelle's death is that of a local hit job gone wrong. In other words, Lavelle was the victim of a mistaken identity. It's what both the police and the majority of the community believe. Looking at how the murder went down and the circumstances of the security footage, it's easy to conclude that the killing was intentional, but without a motive or sensible theory, it could mean Lavelle was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's plausible that the responsible suspects were instructed to target a balding black man in his 30s driving a classic in the vicinity of Milwaukee's downtown districts. When they noticed Lavelle, either at the gas station or earlier in the night, they tailed him to the location and then picked a time to strike waiting for him and Ed to depart. In this theory, it makes sense that the men did not personally know who they were going after, and they certainly had a good look at Lavelle when he first rolled up to the gas station and the lights were still on. They might not have even been 100% sure, but still carried on with the hit as planned, as disturbing as that may sound. It bears repeating that Lavelle had no known enemies or disgruntled people in his life that would go through such lengths to murder him in cold blood meaning if Lavelle truly was the victim of a mistaken identity, it makes his senseless death all the more tragic. The unsolved murder of Lavelle Felton is as senseless as they come. It feels like a case that came and went, with hardly anything written about him and his investigation in either print or online. There were a few articles written in local papers and sports-focused outlets such as ESPN, but it never garnered the national attention these types of cases deserve. Thus, it is hard to set a concrete conclusion when tying up loose ends in the case, as there is still so much information we don't have. However, based on the little clues we do have access to, the only hypothesis that makes sense is the last discussed theory of Lavelle Felton being the victim of a targeted hit gone wrong. We believe that the men seen in the CCTV footage were looking for a man who matched Lavelle's general description and carried out the murder, failing to correctly identify him. That being said, we do not believe the case is unsolvable. 
We hope that ballistic records exist for the murder weapon used now that it is in possession of law enforcement. While guns like that usually have no point of origin or detailed history, there is always the potential for evidence to exist in the most unlikely of places. We also believe that the case can be solved with increased communication by the MPD. We ask that they continue sharing relevant information in the case on platforms that go beyond just the greater Milwaukee area. Much has changed in the world in the last 13 years since Lavelle was killed, and people who once called the Cream City their home might have moved and are no longer privy to the local news in Milwaukee. With a greater awareness spread on Lavelle Felton's behalf, and continued due diligence by the investigating detectives, there is a chance justice is ultimately served, and the men responsible for the calculated killing are finally uncovered. The odds may be against our favor, but they certainly aren't insurmountable. It is important to remember Lavelle as more than just another victim of senseless gun violence. He was the definition of a hard worker, a symbol of the American dream that says no matter what, you don't give up on your goals. Lavelle was slowly but surely making those goals a reality, set to achieve whatever tasks were put before him. Lavelle was also an incredibly wonderful family man outside of his passions and career. He brought in a young boy as if he was his own son, forging a bond that will most certainly leave a positive impact throughout Austin Tucker's adult life. Lavelle was robbed of getting to watch him and the other two children grow up into wonderful human beings and be the loving, nurturing father to them that he didn't receive for a good portion of his young life. Lavelle was simply taken from the earth far too soon. It was a guarantee that even if Lavelle didn't reach the NBA, he was determined to continue doing good for his community as long as he was alive. He was devoted to charity and developing the minds of youth across Milwaukee, all for the better. He should still be with us today, sharing his wisdom and leadership with the world. At least, that is how we will remember him, both a student and a teacher, with a whole lot left to give. This is Cold Case Detective.